I tell you what, uh, that's got to that's got to bless uh, Shelly and Shane to see. Uh, her. You are you thirteen yet? I didn't think you was thirteen. She's twelve. And um, has that kind of boldness, bold as a lion. Well, how do you follow that? I want to take off from what she was sharing about the Great Commission. There's a little word there um, that, you know, we've, we've dissected the Great Commission and that she read from Matthew 28. Make disciples is the imperative, but there's a participle that leads that, that verse. Go, or going, would be a more proper translation of it. Let me give you this in the message. Um, Matthew 28, Jesus, undeterred, went right ahead and gave his charge. God authorized and commanded me to commission you. Go out and train everyone you meet, far and near, in this way of life, marking them by baptism in the threefold name, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Then instruct them in the practice of all I've commanded you. And I'll be with you as you do this day by day, day after day, right up to the end of the age. We're commanded to go to the nations. But let's consider an earlier command that Jesus gave the disciples in Matthew 10. And this is one of the early times when the Lord sent them out. He did this a couple of times while he was training them. This was... On the job training, he was putting them in situations way before he gave them the Great Commission. He was sending them out to, you know, confront demonic forces, to heal people, to um, preach the kingdom of God. An interesting thing, though, in Matthew 10, he restricted that highly. He, he really kind of let them know where their target group was. If you remember this, this is Matthew 10, verse 5. These 12, Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles and enter or enter any town of the Samaritans. He limited them by saying Gentiles are off limits on this mission and Samaritans don't go to either one. He said, go rather to the lost sheep of Israel, and as you go, proclaim this message, the kingdom of heaven has come near. And they went out, and they were supposed to preach that message, but only to Jewish people. Now, in anticipation of Pentecost, you know that he expanded that, didn't he? He said, you'll receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, into Samaria, and into the uttermost parts of the world where mainly Gentiles lived. It's kind of interesting that Jesus gave this narrow message. It's almost as though I think he's saying, you're not really ready to preach this to Samaritans. And you're not really ready, think about it, to step into a Gentile culture and communicate to them what the kingdom of God means. The kingdom of God, Jewish people understand that. 
Because they were looking for a king. They were looking for a Messiah. So it's almost like there may be like two years through a four-year diploma study. And so he gives them a project and a mission that's tailored to where they're at. That makes sense, doesn't it? But you get on over into John 4, and that's where we're going to go from this. And, and I'm sharing this because, you know, Sunday morning, if everything goes right, we're, we're considering this project, an evangelism project that we're going to launch next year. And it's going to, our, our preparation for that starts Sunday in what we're calling a survey Sunday. And uh, I'll just leave it at that. But we're wanting to do some things we've, We've never done before. And we're starting that in October with life groups. But there's an evangelistic tool that Larry and I, when we heard about it, we just like, man, we got to do this. This is one of the best tools that, that I've ever heard of. And I've been trained in evangelism explosion. Went on evangelism explosion. We went door to door. We went door to door here. We had Titus Lee come. You remember that? Some of you that was around from Chicago. We went, we went throughout Alberta City. Titus is on my team. He said, you know, this is so odd here. Everybody here says they're a Christian. And it's obviously when they just look like they've finished smoking some pot that they're not a Christian. He said, in Chicago, they just say, no, I'm not a Christian. I know I'm not going to heaven. He says, here, everybody's going to heaven. I said, yes, yeah, it's a Southern culture, Titus. But we've done all that. But this is the way I think that we have a, to fulfill the Great Commission. And listen, the Great Commission is not a commission to the institution of the church. It's not First Assembly of God's commission. It's our commission. It's, it's not a denomination commission. It's, it's to each of us. So... Shouldn't we be ready and saying, Lord, how can I personally help fulfill this commission? And I believe we're, we're all going to have a chance to do that. Every single person sitting in this room is going to have a part in this new endeavor that we're going to launch. It is, it is going to be out of sight. But when you go to John chapter 4, let me just track this with you in the early verses of chapter 4. It starts with that the Pharisees have noticed that there's a shift going on with John the Baptist's ministry and the ministry of Jesus. And the shift is this. The Pharisees notice that Jesus and his disciples have surpassed what is going on with John and his group. And his team. That the number of baptisms of people responding to the message of Jesus and his disciples have become greater than the people going to listen to what John the Baptist has to say in their repentance. And so the very next thing in verse 4 that you see is that Jesus is ready to leave. And think about this. Where did Jesus start his ministry? Well, his ministry actually was launched out of the baptism of John. 
That's the, it says the Holy Spirit came upon him and he was filled with the Holy Spirit and it catapulted him into the hills for 40 days of hand-to-hand combat with the evil one. And then the ministry is on. And it seems like in Judea, where this was all going on, that it just started escalating. Once Jesus got his disciples and, and things started moving, people were responding. And so Jesus was actually going to move the base of his ministry from Judea to Galilee. But it said this, that he had to go through Samaria. Now I want to show you a map of why this was, you know, it's not necessarily that there was a spiritual need in Samaria with this woman. Do you have that up? And, uh, but there was, Samaria was in between Judea and Galilee. Okay? So a lot of the people that were so standoffish from having anything to do with Samaritans, they would, while it was in Judea, they would cross over the Jordan River and go up the the east side of the Jordan River, and then cross back over into Galilee. The capitalist was pretty much occupied by Gentiles. And so it says they would rather walk through the countryside of Gentiles and pagans than, than go through the area where the Samaritans lived. But we all know that what Jesus said he did, he only did when the Father told him. He did what he preached. The Father told him what miracles he did. He said, I only do what the Father tells me. So, he must have had a, a, a good idea that he had something waiting on him in Samaria, at Sychar. Now, I'm going to read from verse 4 through verse 8. Now he had to go through Samaria. <clears throat> and I just wanted you to see how that worked with that map. And by the way, Sychar, that area of Samaria was Ephraim's allotment. When the, when the tribes were given their allotment. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, which is uh, another word for Shechem. <clears throat> and uh, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph, to Joseph through his son Ephraim. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me... A drink. And here's a parenthesis. Jesus' disciples had gone into town to buy food. All right, let's stop here just for a moment. John is writing and he alerts us this conversation Jesus initiated is during a time when the disciples, none of them are around. Now, why is that? You know what? I think going to the grocery store can be arduous, but sending 12 men to the grocery store? (laughs) What were they buying? (laughs) So it had to be more than just, you know, two or three of them. I mean, when he wanted to set up the Passover meal, he only sent a couple of his disciples. You know, you go set that up. He didn't send all 12 of them. So it was specifically to get them out of the picture. And John records this conversation. And the reason John knows what happened there, Jesus had to tell him, this is what happened. This is what happened when you were gone. This woman comes up with her her pot to draw water, and Jesus asks her for a drink. And what is the significance of John adding this little note? It was about noon. 
It was in the middle of the day. That's not the time that people usually came and, and got their water. It was the hottest part of the day. Usually like a, a morning like this morning, 55 degrees. Come on. That was nice walking out this morning. But it, that was a, a difficult thing to just carry a heavy pot of, of water back to your home. So it could be, as people say, that maybe the ladies in, in the village didn't want to have anything to do with her, and she knew that. So she came by herself at a time where she didn't have to listen to the gossip and listen, watch the looks, because she didn't have a very good reputation. You remember when Jesus went to eat at the Pharisee's house, and he asked him to come and eat and have a meal there, and a woman with a bad reputation came into the home and had a big bottle of perfume, and when she got to Jesus, she started weeping, and her tears was washing over his feet, and she began to wipe the tears off of his feet with her hair, and then she poured the perfume on his feet. And what did the Pharisee say to himself? If this man was a prophet, if he was a prophet, uh, he would know this is a terrible woman. He would not even let her touch him. And then, of course, Jesus gives a story about two people who owed debts, one a large debt, one a small debt, and they were forgiven. He says, now, who do you think would love the the person forgiven them more. And he said, well, I guess the one who had the large debt says, she had a large debt. And as for you, you didn't do anything for me. You didn't offer anything for my feet. But since I come in, he also said, this woman hasn't ceased to kiss my feet. Well, you know what? I'd be a little, that'd be awkward for me. (laughs) Somebody comes in and starts kissing on your feet and all this like, this, I feel awkward. I feel this is uncomfortable. But, but, Jesus, but Jesus let her do it. He let her do it, which was a big no-no. You know? So he, he, all this is going on. And here's a woman that's like, maybe the, maybe the disciples, when they arrived back and they saw him talking to her, they just saw a woman. They probably didn't know her background. But let me pick it back up in verse 9. I'm going to get to a couple of questions, a few questions here in just a moment. Some people call John 4 a lesson in friendship evangelism. The Samaritan woman said to him, If you are, you are a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan, a Samaritan woman at that, how do you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and And he's about to change the direction of this conversation. If you knew the gift of God, immediately he's bringing God into the equation. This is just not two people at a well thinking about getting water. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? You got the idea that this well was really a special place. Jesus said, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. 
But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Sir, she said, give me this water. But in her mind, there was a reason. So I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. We, we, can, we can just stop this if you show me where that water is. He shifts the conversation. She doesn't even realize he's shifting the conversation out of the natural into the supernatural. And now they're in a full-blown discussion. Let me ask you this. Who's leading this conversation? It's absolutely. The Lord is. He's in charge of this conversation. He was in charge from the first question. Will you give me a drink of water? And I think we need to realize that we just can't wait sometimes for the conversation to come around to where we can pick it up and try to interject. I think the Lord wants us to direct the conversation. If we're going to witness to someone and share the gospel, we just kind of like, that's not going to happen accidentally. And Jesus didn't strike up a, a, just a casual conversation. Hey, how you doing? How's your day going? Hey, can you give me a drink of water? He knew, he knew what was about to happen. And so he was directing this conversation. So here's where it gets personal. Right at this point, he says, go call your husband. Now you go from living water and a well, and what do you have to draw water from to go get your husband? Go fetch your husband and come back. And she says, I don't have a husband. And he said, you're right when you said you don't have a husband. The fact is you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. And boy, this is a stretch for her, isn't it? Sir, I can see that you're a prophet. And I want to say, duh. (laughs) Really? How many people would this description fit in that day and time? Probably rarely. Because it was was a one-sided thing in divorce then. But she immediately tries to take over the conversation. And who would blame her? He just got really personal with her, didn't he? He says, you're right. You don't have a husband. But you've had five in the past. And the guy you have now, y'all not married. You know, who wouldn't want to redirect the conversation? I stopped right there because it's almost like mid-sentence mid-thought, she shifts gear. And she starts talking. I'm not going to go through this part of the conversation about uh, Mount Gerizim and Jerusalem and we worship and you worship. And she's trying to kind of like create a rabbit trail to get off of me to let's talk about us and you. Let's do a group discussion. Let's don't do this about you and me. Let's bring everybody, you Jews, we, all of a sudden she's getting, she, she wants company. 
We worship here. Let's not talk about me. Let's talk about we. And to her, to, to her defense, I think probably most people would try to find a place to hide when that kind of light has shined upon your life and the failures that you have already left are probably very beat up and wounded. She don't want to rehearse that. She don't want to visit that. Let me ask you this. What, what, in your opinion, do you think her greatest need was? What do you think her greatest need was? Salvation. Salvation? Hope? Forgiveness? You think she is a pretty beat up woman at this point in her life? Beat up, beat down. Taken advantage of. Because a woman couldn't file for a divorce. Only men could file for a divorce. So this meant five men married her and put her out. So her greatest need was she was a wounded, beaten down woman that had someone talking to her about living water, about hope. What are the chances, listen, this is where I'm going to get back to a word that I said at the start. What are the chances that this woman has this conversation that leads to a transformation in her life if Jesus did not tell his disciples on that morning, we need to go through Samaria. Is this going to happen? So the word go means something. It means move from where you're at and go to some place where the need is because the need is not coming to you. It's not coming to me. We're having to go to it. And this is why we must go through Samaria, to Samaria. Now, we have to go where people are. And that's a kind of a point that I'm making here is that we, we need to be mobile, not stationary. We need to be moving toward people and not waiting for them to move toward us. This woman would have never... This woman's life was radically changed. And you know, it, was, it had this rippling effect because everybody in town knew about her. Everybody knew her life. And when she shows up saying what she said about Jesus, isn't this the way it should be? When someone really has a radical change in their life and they begin to tell their other friends, guess what's going to happen? There's going to be people following and coming right behind her. It is a snowballing effect. People who saw, they, I think they saw something different in her when she came back and she was excited. She wasn't like the, the beat down lady maybe that only wanted to go and draw water at noon because she didn't have to listen to anybody's gossip about her. She was okay to be with people again. She went and told, you know, people in her town, you got to come out and listen to this guy. He's... He, he, tell me, he told me everything I'd ever done. <laughs> that might not make people want to line up and talk to him, you know. Like, he'll tell you everything you've ever done. But where did Jesus do ministry? Where did he do the bulk of his ministry? 
when he preached and when he taught, where, where was he at most of the time? He was outside. He was on the beach. He was in the wilderness. He was on this side of the Sea of Galilee, on another side. There's three times where the Bible, and you might can find more, but there's three times that I found that he preached in the synagogue. And you think this regular meeting on Saturday where they had Sabbath school and Sabbath scripture reading and Sabbath prayer, and, and that's where everybody, all the families, everybody in the community went to synagogue on Saturday, on Sabbath. And we see him preaching in his hometown synagogue, and that didn't go well, did it? Two other times it says that he went into the synagogue and preached. One was in Capernaum where a demon-possessed man, you know, expressed that demon possession right there in the synagogue. And Jesus delivered the man from demon possession. The other time he was in the synagogue, there was a man with a withered hand, and Jesus healed it. Well, he asked them the question, is it, is it okay to do this on the Sabbath or not? But everywhere else that Jesus mentioned, he might have done more than that in the synagogue, it's just not recorded. But almost everything else, he was not in a place waiting for people to come hear him preach. He was moving. He was moving to where the people were. And I think he modeled that to these disciples to where when the church was launched, they were mobile. You remember Paul, when Paul went on his mission journeys, a lot of times he'd go in and he would try to talk to the Jewish people. And where did he go to talk to the Jewish people? The synagogue. But most of the time, it created more trouble. You know, and they, they ran him out. And when he got to uh, Philippi, he, 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 didn't, he didn't go to the synagogue. He went out here. There were some people getting gathering outside the city gate. And he went out there and, and preached in Lydia and and some people responded, and later on he preached in the jail, and after that he went to Athens, and he preached outside. He, they, they took him to Mars Hill, and he was telling all these people about the resurrection of Jesus. He was going to where the people are, and I really think this is the example. Let me just read you a couple verses from Acts 17 where he was at Areopagus, Mars Hill in Athens, a large city, a famous city, Athens, Greece. Paul was waiting there in Athens. He was greatly distressed to see that city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue to both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, marketplace, day by day with those who happened to be there. So where's the going in our lives? I want to ask you, how many want to have a going nature? To feel like you're on mission. That wherever you're going, you're looking for what God may have you to do. And this is what I want us to pray tonight about. Brandon, if you could come. And uh, the last song, the the... the about people searching for answers only you provide. Can you just put that slide up? But I, I wanted to sing that. You know, I, uh, I'm reading a, a new book on preaching by Calvin Miller. And uh, I always know if, I, if a book's going to 
be good for me if in the first few pages it body slams me a few times and it, and it, and it just body slammed me. I was copying and, and, and sending Paul Burdine. I says, after about three or four long sections that I copied and sent to him, I said, I'm really not copying the whole book to you, but I could. But this, this whole matter of us feeling compelled to reach our generation. And I, to be honest with you, I think we miss that. We're missing, we're missing the alarm, the alarm in our souls. We're, and I've shared this with uh, Tim Pippins and I. We had sexual counseling here yesterday, and Brother Drawn was all over this. And it's just Larry and I have sat, and we just kind of dealt with this and can I just be a little, just transparently honest with you? I think we're in such a survival mode as people that we're just trying to make it ourselves and keep our head above the water, and we don't have the go in us anymore. We just don't have the go. We, we, we're just trying to, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, it seems like we're just trying to get through life. And we've kind of lost the, the drive that Jesus wants to stir in us that we should feel a responsibility to our generation and to our culture. And I really believe that when he stopped in Samaria that day, he made it possible for when Philip got to Samaria in Acts, they knew how to talk to those people. And they knew how to preach to them. And they knew how to witness to them. And he was kind of like modeling. When you get up here and these people's lives are all messed up, this is what you need to rely on. You need to rely on the anointing of God and the Holy Spirit to give you wisdom and prophetic insight. insight. Where these people are hurting. They're searching for answers. They're searching for hope. And I guarantee you there's something, as Billy Graham said, that there's a... There's a space in our soul, in our heart, that only Christ can fill. And the reason why people turn to different things is they're trying to fill that space where only Christ really satisfies with stuff. And I think we got people all around us that are like that lady. Their lives may not be in such a moral, you know, conundrum that she was in, but there's, they're searching. They're seeking. And we know the answer, don't we? Here's what I want us to do. I want us to stand, and I want us to pray. And I'm just going to give you words to say if you don't really know. You know, how do I... Can you say, Lord, give me a heart for people? Can you say to God in a way... And I, I told Larry, I said, I had a gut-wrenching, transparently prayer with the Lord this morning when I was getting ready. Can you say, Lord, break off of me fear, pride, apathy, complacency. Crush those things that I've allowed to layer in on top of my soul where I don't have the passion that I need. Break the stuff off of me, Lord. Break excuses off of me. And say, God, empower me to be bold in my witness for you.
After all, friends, the Great Commission is non-negotiable. But can you think about those things that I've just said? Lord, Lord, I, I pray that tonight we'll just be honest with you and say, we're not anywhere near the passionate people we need to be to go after our world and go after young people and the millennials and all these generations that we've seen where they're at. And, and they're drifting. They're adrift. And you're the source of living water. You were the source for that lady at the well. There's a lot of people trying to pull things from wells, different wells, to satisfy the longings of their soul. But only you have the living water. Only you have the lasting peace that they need. I pray, Lord, for people in this city that are so broken. They may even think that it's uh, too late for them. They've gone too far. That, God, you wouldn't be even interested in helping them. And we know that that's the lie of the enemy. That you'd bring them to a well somewhere where there's someone that can show them you. And tell, tell them there's hope. There is hope, Lord. I pray for every man and woman in this room because we interact with people from time to time. Not maybe every day, but... We, we cross paths with people, sometimes in, in the same setting at work, or, and we're not sure where they are, if they're a believer or not. We haven't even conversed with them enough to know. Get us out of that and help us to be more open to just steering a conversation to who you are. Thank you, Lord.